Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This is a conversation I had myself with Konstantin Gordiev himself, the Russian, Irish, and uh, now US-based economics professor, who's currently lecturing on economics in Denver, Colorado. So we had a great conversation on the run-up to the US midterms about what's going on in the US, US politics, and indeed central bank um, actions across the globe, be it the Bank of England, the Central Bank, and the Fed. We also get into events in Ukraine. I'm lifting the paywall now because the midterms are tomorrow and actually because a few of our patrons said to me, get that out really quickly. It was one of the best they've heard from Constantine. Uh, If you are listening, if you enjoy, please support us. I can't stress enough how much we rely on your support to keep this show on the road. It's the link in the podcast that you're listening to right now, patreon.com forward slash tortoise The price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month and it keeps these mics on, the conversations happening. And as I keep saying, it's not a one-way street. You get all the podcasts in one consolidated feed in one place as quickly as I can turn them around. You're missing out alone on my conversation with Nessa Hurrigan on what's going on around slaps. If you don't know what slaps are, you need to find out. There's an excellent insight from the Guardian's uh, political commentator of the year, John Harris, uh, who rejoined me to discuss all things UK uh, and particularly his brilliant series, Anywhere But Westminster. And there's also a a conversation with uh, Nicholas McGeehan on what's happening in Qatar in terms of the World Cup and workers' rights, LGBT rights. And people be aware of Nicholas if you aren't. He's one of the people who's been banging this drum for years and years. And it's a great privilege to get to talk to him again. All of those go out as quickly as I can turn them around on the Patreon feed. As I said, we do need your support. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for rating. All of those things. But please click the link and see if there's a level you're happy to support this project. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and I continue to fly solo as my colleague is unwell. Um, And I try to actually give him, try to be say something funny or humorous about this stage but no genuinely he's unwell and i hope he uh, is getting the treatment and care that he needs uh, and uh, speaking of treatment and care that he needs we need to talk about the treatment and care that um central banks are uh, giving to the global economy at the moment and joining me back on the podcast to talk about just how bad things are or or potentially what changes are afoot is uh is, is, is friend of the pod constantine gordiev constantine it's great to talk to you again how are you keeping great to hear from you tony and i certainly wish martin the best and the speediest recovery possible we're going to miss him for now oh we do he always brings the humor so unfortunately folks we're stuck with the two the two gloom merchants now um but i i I suppose can i ask a very uh, open question to begin with we've been talking about for for months now about what's happening in terms of you know, inflation, global pressures, food chain, uh, supply chain issues, all of these things. And uh, the analogy that keeps being used that if you, if you, uh, the only tool you have is a hammer, all you see are nails. And it appears that the Fed, the Bank of England, the ECB just think they all, the only thing toolbox tool they have in their toolbox is a hammer. And we're going to keep hitting us with these, you know, it, what, what, I can't remember who said it. Was it Groucho Marx that morale will, um, the beatings will continue <laughs> until the morale improves. improves? Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, and they're brutal beatings. I mean, this is what Fed has done uh, this week is utterly and completely brutal. Mm. Uh, it's not just nail uh, versus a hammer. It's a nail versus a sledgehammer. And they actually are aware that the problem is not really curable by the tools that they're using. You mentioned the idea that they claim that they are running out of tools. When they were running out of tools to subsidize fiscal side of the economy, 
pump money into the economy, prime banks and you know create liquidity for the financial system, they invented those tools on daily basis, on ongoing basis, especially like ECB. I mean, come on, they came up with a whole English dictionary worth of their acronyms mm-hmm. from TLTROs to LTROs to all of these fancy things. So now that they've run out of tools to deal with the inflation, they have difficulty inventing them. The problem is the following, okay? And this is exemplified perfectly this week by the Fed, yes? So personal consumption expenditure, which is the most favored inflation measure that Fed uses in their analysis, not the CPI, is uh, at 6.2% this September. More widely quoted CPI is 8.2%. This sounds pretty bad, and it is pretty bad, okay? Because underlying reality is the prices are rising, and they're rising at the pace that is not necessarily deaccelerating. So they hiked the the rates by 75 basis points, that 3.75% hike total in eight months. And it's basically the steepest in history of the Fed. Can can I just, for the benefit of, I I really want you to finish that thought, but I want listeners to know for the benefit of the historic context of this, these usually take five-year cycles to go through some of these. That's So the previous previous hike period was 70% slower uh, sorry, the previous fastest hiking period in history of the Fed was 70% slower in the speed of hikes of the interest rates than the current one. This is how freaking scary it is. So there are multiple pain points that that delivers, all right? First pain point is within the domestic economy, within the United States, the cost of housing, the actual cost of housing is accelerating because the mortgages costs is going to be rising. Most Americans are on fixed mortgages, unlike say, in Europe. So that pain is a little bit kind of cushioned, but it is pushing the commercial mortgages, it's pushing the investor mortgages up much faster. So as a result of that, the rents are going to be accelerating. So we had this big debate this uh, this week on foot of the data coming out of Fed, whether the rents inflation is abating or not. And what's interesting about that is that the new rents inflation, the asking rents inflation is slowing down significantly. And in fact, actually, we are registering negative inflation there. But the existing rents inflation is still rampant double digit. So as a result of that, you have the interest rates rising, which means that all of your adjustable rate debt is becoming more expensive for the households. And the households are starting to pay higher and higher prices in terms of rents and some also in terms of mortgages. That's not abating the inflation because in normal traditional setting, what you would say is the households will tighten the belts. That's the usual phrase for it and cut discretionary spending. But inflation is not in discretionary spending, okay? So if you look, for example, within services category, okay, leading contributors to the inflation last month in September were housing and utilities. Can't cut those much. I mean, you gotta have shelter and you have to warm it up, okay? You Mm -hmm. have to cook food, yes? Other services was another one, which is mostly international travel. Okay, fair enough. But that's not a huge category in terms of the expenditure overall. And transportation services. Now, transportation services, some of them you can cut, some of them you cannot cut, and so forth, okay? So, again, a lot of the services inflation is non-discretionary. You can't tighten the belt. Mm. There is no belt to tighten. Within goods, non-durable goods, other non-durable goods, mostly driven, uh, the largest increase in inflation within the goods is in the category of prescription drugs. Good luck tightening that belt. Yeah. No, I mean, and and, think about those, those categories that you've just outlined. 
there um, I'm reminded again I, I spoke to John Harris from The Guardian recently and he does a brilliant series called Anywhere But Westminster where he goes out and he meets people who are behind these macroeconomic policies and you know we, we people queuing at food banks people mm-hmm. waiting Correct. for this is, and he said you know one of the things, one of the phrases I, I had used then uh, was that people were alive, alive but not living. So if you can be alive, you can have food, shelter, you know, uh, warmth, but you're not actually living. You're not you're not actually living. And I think about the time you actually said to Martin on this podcast that go out and look outside, see, mm-hmm. see the people, see their faces, see what what goods they're carrying, see the 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 the, the quality of the the shop that you're looking at, see what's see see if there's empty units. Those the 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 eye test, Constantine, is not is mm-hmm. not a is not a healthy sign. And when you come back to the the cost of housing, we see now, and I I put it out this morning that m- many of these funds are now trying to reconsolidate some of their things to the point where even people who have invested have been told if you want out no no withdrawals at the moment because uh you know yeah. it and that is a very deep concern we, do, do you remember i remember the the likes of and again no no fear saying it the irish life property fund was the blue chip and upward only rent reviews we're gonna always it's always going to be good and all of these tenants are always going to keep going until they didn't <laughs> I remember when I was on a stock brokerage back in Ireland uh, in the days uh, in 2008, and Eugene Sheehy at the time, the uh, CEO of the uh, AIB, came in uh, to talk to us about their uh, their annual actual results to mm-hmm. our analysts, and he announced that they're going to have the um, extraordinary dividend payout. Okay, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, analysts. It wasn't even me sitting there. You know, it was you know myself and uh, analysts. Um, you know, was sitting there. And the analysts actually said to to him, you know, uh, what about the mortgages defaults? And he said, uh, Irish people do not default on mortgages. <laughs> the, I mean, there is there is a parallel universe that we live, and some of us actually sometimes like myself for example get to cross occasionally the border most of mm. the people don't okay because you either live in the universe of the people who think that jerome paul has delivered a powerful performance quote from bloomberg um last week and that's the people who actually benefited from this the party of 2006 2004 2005 and they also benefited from the party of 2020 and 2021 2022 mm-hmm. um and the rest of us the normal world to whom this isn't a theater. This is real life. This is real mortgages. This is real homelessness risk. This is real choice between whether we're going to hit our homes this year or we're going to put food on the table that is hot this year. It is the choice between will we be able to educate our children or provide health care for our elder. I mean, that's the, and these are two parallel universes. And those two parallel universes do not intersect as such by and large. I mean, you look at the cities like, I mean, in Ireland, it's a little bit, harder to imagine even though when you walk along the canals for example you can see that that division is there but like say in cities like in la you get into your bentley and you drive down from the hills where your mansion is based and there are tenements tenements Mm -hmm. of thousands of people living in the streets in squalor and you kind of say to yourself like i'm old enough to remember when the soviets for example used to publish magazines glossy magazines you know with the pictures of the decaying west mm-hmm. and it would be slums of say for example really poor countries somewhere photographed um, but we now see that in major wealthiest cities in the united states everywhere i work in a small town mm-hmm. i mean it's about 110,000 population roughly speaking maybe 115,000 population 
On outskirts of the town, by the river, there is a massive, absolutely, encampment of people who are homeless. I mean, how they live, what they do, how they exist. I see them walk along the highway sometimes when you drive by. Um, their reality is completely distinct from the reality of people who make policies, from people who talk about monetary policy, monetary economics, macroeconomics, um, and so forth. So, And that reality disconnect between us playing out in the United States right now. We're going to have elections in the United States. Only a few and, days away. And, correct, yes. And can I can I say something on this? And again, this is a comment, not a question, which is not you're not supposed to do as a, as, as a host, but... It's it's mad because I keep hearing reporting around the US midterms as in a referendum on Roe versus Wade, a referendum on Trump versus Biden in the future, a referendum on MAGA versus, you know, sane politics. Where the truth of it is, it should be a referendum on housing, inequality, and better work <laughs> conditions. It should be a referendum on on cost of living. Am, am I am I the one who's mad, or is it just that this is easier to frame it that way? No, you're actually completely correct. The word frame is the most important word in all of this context, okay? It should have been a referendum on Roe versus Wade. It should have been a referendum on human rights. It should have been a referendum on the freedom of speech. It should have been a referendum on housing. It should have been a referendum on education, a referendum on the military and healthcare and so forth. A referendum on freaking roads and bridges which are falling apart, okay? But mm. it isn't. And the reason why it isn't is because there are two parties and both parties have an interest to deflect the attention of the electorate away from matters that from things that actually matter in everyday life. Why? Because the mess with the inflation, the mess with the economy, the mess with roads, the mess with women's rights in this country, in the United States, has been caused by both parties working hand in hand over decades and doing literally F off nothing. So if you think, for example, one of the biggest points of uh, debate in the modern politics in the United States is the immigration policy, yes? The United States have not had an immigration reform since Ronald Reagan times. Mm -hmm. This is last time there was a structural approach to think about the framework of immigration. This is a society which is built on immigration. This is the society which is not only in the 19th century and 20th century, but even today depends on immigration as the force for the renewal, for the generational renewal, for demographic renewal. The only reason the United States is not in the situation of Germany, Italy, and Japan right now, demographically, is because of immigration. And yet, since the days of Ronald Reagan, since 1980s, we haven't had guts in Congress or in the White House to have a meaningful reform on one of the biggest issues. After that, I mean, everything else is perfectly explainable. Everything is framed. It's all framed in these vacuous debates between the personalities. But like this, you know, there's a Dr. Oz out there, and then there's, you know, another guy there, you know, and we like that guy, and we didn't like that guy. And this guy was endorsed by, you know, actually today, uh, Oprah Winfrey endorsed, uh, you know, what's his name, Fireman, um, over Oz. And, you know, this is, that's the political debate. It's nonsense. Yeah, I mean, you the, have... The, the... Like you we're have a president who cannot tell Monday from Tuesday, mm -hmm. even with the calendar in front of him, traveling around California right now, trying to drum up support. I'm kind of, you know, like, again, I'm old enough to remember the Soviet times when I grew up. I don't know anyone who was healthy in their head who would go and listen to Leonid Brezhnev speak. Why would you go listen to what Joe Biden has to say? I, I listened to his most recent speech, and he actually, again, 
went down the rabbit hole of um, talking a little, leaned a bit into the old culture war stuff in, in an area where he's talking about, as you said, California, people are concerned about a roof over their heads. They have a huge Correct. housing crisis. And, you know, if you're not going to tackle that, you're not going to get anywhere. And it does strike me. You mentioned Dr. Oz coming up against Fetterman. How how bad this has gotten where like, you know, I don't know if, if listeners are aware Fetterman is, is the incumbent, but he also had a stroke. And then there's, there's been, there's a debate. They're saying, is he, is he fit to, is he fit to be maintain the job? And Dr. Oz is a celebrity who's got, doesn't even live in, doesn't even live in the, in the, in the, in the area. In the that state, he's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he just happens, he just happens to own like 12 houses or something, you know? And, and then we have Herschel Walker who, you know, uh, was a college star, a football star, a, a decent NFL career, but also threatened to shoot his ex-wife in the head and is still actually probably going to get elected in, in a state whereby we were told Georgia was, was actually going to move. And then to make matters worse, and this is not, I hate to do Constantine, even if we do see it, it flip, you get nothing done anyway. Because exactly. because Obama had opportunities to fix things in terms of the dreamers, he had chances to fix things. He said, talked about codifying Rod Roe versus Wade. He, they never did it. No, nothing. That's the whole problem. As I said, you know, this is a framing of the debate, which uh, about kind of you know pretend to be democracy at this stage, uh, where really nothing gets done at all as a result of that. So, and this is why there is a constant flipping between the Congress and the, and the executive branch in terms of who controls it, because you have two parties, neither one of which is capable of actual change. The only thing that I must say is that the you know, Republicans have shown in the last, say, decade, a strong ability to have a long-term strategic plan in place. The way they flip the Supreme Court is very clearly a kind of an outcome of the multi-year concerted, mm-hmm. sustained agenda. And the Roe versus Wade is a very important issue in this context, not only because of the issue itself of women's rights, beyond any doubts, it's the most fundamental issue you can imagine having, but it also is very important in the sense that it actually sets, opens the gates for other things as well, for consideration of other issues. So, I mean, that's you have to give the Republicans that. Can't even give that to Democrats. But, to but when you give them that, again, I don't think enough was made of the fact that a donation of a billion euro, a billion dollars, went through Ireland to one of these dark money foundations that helps the Republicans do this tax-free. Okay, they, that is initially that's long-term strategic planning, and they're coming for on the basis of the Supreme Court, where they've said we want to talk about the originalist policy. So what the what the people who sat down and set this out very different times. There, there should not be questions about LGBT rights. There should not be questions about sure. women's right to choose. But here we are now. And then and look at us. We've been distracted by it again because none of this is going to actually build a house. None of this is going to reduce You're rents. Right. None of this You're is right. a lot. Of, a lot of those issues. And, you know, this is also, again, you know, the Republican strategy since the days of the mid 1990s, which is actually paying off as well. Uh, is an ability to frame the debate into the and deflect it, therefore, into the areas and channels where the particular political agenda can be played out. So, for example, conservative religious issues, conservative social issues, 
are probably not on anybody's table as the most pressing issues at all right now, as of today. And yet the Republicans were able to put them to the forefront of decision-making and policy-making in the United States, precisely because it gives them effectively a carte blanche to do everything else, whatever they want, on, say, for example, economic matters. And in economic spheres, there is no difference between the center-left and center-right Democrats and uh, you know Republicans in general, whether they are all the way to the Trumpoid MAGA hat level or they are closer to the traditional Republican, say, Reagan-level center. But, but even if you want to go into the, you know, the AOCs of this world who, who have said some things that I would I would say tally with a v- version of socialism that maybe America's, you know, doesn't uh, never seems to be ready for. She continues to vote for policies that uh, purport the status quo as well. So you know, it's it's. I often say to people, don't don't judge them on what they say, but judge them on, on what they how they actually bloody vote when they when when they have. Which their is exactly which is exactly the replay of the Republican book that the Democrats finally adopted at a certain point in time. Um, the whole rebellion, youth rebellion in the Democratic Party, happened at the time when the Republicans were able to co-op completely their youth. So. Over the during the 1990s, again, by looking at the social aspects, social issues, and playing along the social dimension as opposed to the economic dimension, okay, uh, social policy dimension, the Republicans were able to um, not just co-op, but also bring into the mainstream a whole bunch of the younger, if you want, leaders. So the Republican Party, which we think of the old gray white men, actually became the party which is currently gaining ground over the Democrats in the likes of, say, for example, Latino community. They are certainly capable of putting forward young um, leaders and, uh, if you want, young uh, congressional candidates and so forth, or younger congressional candidates than the Democrats do. So the Democrats, during that period from the mid-1990s throughout, say, 2010s, early 2010s, were in a position where the centrist wing, dominated by the likes of Clinton's, um, held full power. So as a result of that, nobody young could come in anywhere near, unless they're Chelsea Clinton. Um, so, you know, that's what you get now is that the Democrats' youth, like AOC, like the five, yes, have been co-opted back into that kind of, if you want, dominant power brokerage structure of the 60-year-old Democrats mm. and 70-year-old Democrats. And the Republicans actually are more successful currently at the polls uh, in terms of campaigning, precisely because they actually were able to bring in different generations and younger it, generations. It, it, it's it's actually there's echoes of Brexit in some of this as well, whereby you've seen members of the uh, Latino community and and uh, the immigrant community saying, "We need to talk about immigration," <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, um, and it's it, they have been successful in 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 doing that, and that is actually borne out by poll after poll after poll and uh, the other guys are scratching their heads going oh but I thought just because you were a person of colour you would vote for me uh, mm-hmm. you Correct, know, yeah. and, and and that assumption was the worst and ugliest side of uh, of of that kind of white boy, white, white boy politics I'm going to call it can I can I go to one thing though that's that's happening now and it's happening like it's 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 clear to all we're seeing asking prices fall even in Dublin. We're seeing um, the the situation by whereby obviously mortgage rates are going where they're going. Service some certain things are being withdrawn. The Bank of England is a mess. The the the, the policies in the in the UK, the US, the ECB are going to put pressure on it further. 
now it's a different type of crisis this time, Constantine. It's not maybe as much of a personal debt issue as it is, you know, a global capital issue as well. And then we see in the last sort of 24, 48 hours what's happening in the likes of Twitter and Stripe and and this and these businesses. Do you feel that we have already begun the process of the unraveling of the next crisis? Oh, we are. Absolutely. The only question about it is what, what's the next crisis going to be like? We're pretty much sure that the magnitude of the next crisis is going to be much greater than the previous one. Uh, we're pretty much sure that it's going to be probably longer in duration than the previous one. Uh, there are a couple of reasons to believe so. One of the reasons is that historically, and that's research from back mid-2010s, shows very clearly that historically over the centuries, uh, financial crisis, systemic financial crisis became more frequent and more disruptive and more destructive in terms of their impact as well. So that's beyond any doubts, but it also is in other terms, we, when we look at the level of misallocation of resources on the monetary policy and fiscal policy on investment side that we have endured today um, between the say 2010 and until you know this year is magnitudes greater than it was during the peak of the pre-global financial crisis bubble, the real estate bubble. So, I mean, the magnitudes are massive. So, I mean, like, look at it this way. Yes, we had Nikola, uh, the company which produced absolutely freaking nothing, effectively, um, valued at, what, $48 billion at its peak? Yep. It's now about $1 billion. Uh, we had a stationary bike-making freaking company, Peloton, valued at $67 billion, okay, mm -hmm. at its peak. I mean, we keep scratching our heads. We had utter fraud at Theranos. Uh, in, in multiple billions valued as well. We have a taxi company, glorified taxi company, Uber, you know, which was valued at 48 billion, sorry, 60 billion. Right share, right share in Constantine. Is every, it's, I it's, mean, you, you mentioned, you know, Musk buying Twitter. This is classic example. The Bloomberg did the, sorry, not Bloomberg, it was Quartz. Quartz journalists did the calculations, very crude calculations, but a matter of hand. You know how he slapped 420 to the price of uh, bid share, yes, mm -hmm. on Twitter, you know, because of 420 is of course the pot you know um yeah yeah that's you know, the that's the law yeah mm. um so anyways um that 420 oh, just 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 for listeners 420 is the is the law for um marijuana use yes, and it's, that's right it used to be it, it, yeah. it's celebrated in it, 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 the what is it the 20th of of april or whatever is celebrated that's right still. yes, yes exactly yes. Yes. Yeah. And so what he did is that he said, you know, I'll pay 50 bucks for that. And then, uh, you know, the hell, you know, you know, I'll pay 5420. So if you take 20 cents alone, that 20 cents, not 420 full, but 20 cents alone. Okay. He overpaid about $158 million. $158 million for the, uh, for Uber. Okay. Sorry, not Uber for uh, uh, Twitter. Twitter. Okay. And that would have saved that the average job, you know, salary in Twitter is about 186,000. Okay. So it was, it would be about 800 jobs that it would mm. save for people. Okay. Now I'm, my heart, my heart doesn't go out for the employees of Twitter. Okay. They're well paid. They'll find the job. There's plenty of jobs around. Though, as you said before, Apple just froze hiring through mm -hmm. the mid of next year. Uh, all of the tech effectively is either freezing hiring or cutting. So it will be hard. Or looking, or, or instructing their, their uh, real estate people to say, get us short-term leases as opposed oh, to yeah. expansion. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, there's expansion is done for. I mean, the mm -hmm. real estate right now is empty seat in commercial real estate, even though the real estate agents are telling us this is, you know, like you can't lose money on the commercial real estate by now. I mean, you know. Um, but look, I mean, okay, so the, the, the level of misallocation of capital that we have had 
over the period from, say, 20, it depends where, in the United States from around 2011 onwards, and in Europe from around 2015 onwards, uh, is absolutely and utterly massive. And we're not talking about money we spent on fiscal policies, like, say, for example, providing grannies and granddads with the hidden allowances and stuff like that. No, no. We're talking about the massive bust capital subsidies to the Wall Street, to the private equity funds, to the VCs and all. All of that went just like in 2006. Remember, we you know we were hosing down cash onto the property market mm-hmm. in hope that some of it will miraculously come up trumps and the rest of it, yeah, well, okay, if it burns, it burns, okay? We did the same now, but instead of property market, we did it with the entire equity market, yep. private equity and public equity. So this is trillions magnitudes bigger than anything back in 2006, 2008. So the crisis is going to be bigger. When it's going to hit, we don't know. What's interesting as well about this is that this week's uh, Jerome Powell's uh, statement after they increased the interest rates basically said that, look, we expected 5 to 5.5% uh, peak interest rates. Remember, we're at 375 right now, yes? Um, but me and my colleagues are probably were definitely wrong. Most likely, it's going to be much more. So we're now looking at the jump in expectation in interest rates to say about say six and a half, seven percent okay? You're talking about the massive unemployment. You're talking about massive shrinkage of the economy. You're talking about the recession induced by monetary policy on top of the bubble deflating. And then that all is predicated on analysis. Our analysis now is predicated on the idea, okay, this happens, this is bad, okay? This is like blowing up a nuke, okay? And, you know, the economies get destroyed, households get destroyed, people become homeless and dull. But we are heartless macroeconomists. That's just the price we pay to get inflation down. But the real question is, will the inflation go down? Mm-hmm. And is and the drivers of inflation aren't necessarily related to the, the, the levers they're pulling. Exactly. So now, you know, the kind of smarter heads, you know, in both in, in Wall Street, but also in macroeconomics, I start to ask the very uncomfortable question. What happens if we have 7.5% interest rates? What happens if we have 10% unemployment? What happens if we have shrinking economy at, say, 3% a year, and the inflation is not at 8%, but, say, at 5%, mm. and ain't budging from that 5%, not moving at all? What do you do then? Like, and, I mean, what, and how do how much military back, backing do you need in order to contain your population then? Because you just spent a year inflicting massive pain yeah. onto your people. You've made a whole bunch of them unemployed. You have, you've made a whole bunch of them. You destroyed a whole bunch of their pensions and things like that. And that is the second time that that happens within the 20-year time span. So there's at least a couple of generations which have experienced your shock therapies now twice, Okay. And on top of everything, you've been beating yourself in the chest on every freaking channel and in every political campaign that this is necessary in order to get inflation down and inflation ain't going down. Hmm. Yeah, I no, mean, th- there is a, there is an argument. And I am um, Richard Murphy. You probably know Richard, the accounting professor who we, we speak to. He's made the point that a lot of this does could end in civil unrest because, yeah. you know, if people are hungry, and people are cold and people are tired and they're seeing you this this is not working and it's not happening and the light at the end of the tunnel is actually a train coming towards you you are going to i told you before yes i have a barometer here on my end you know every time i drive to work i drive by and on the way back from work i drive by this farm Mm. which is owned by a trump supporter Mm. very ardent trump supporter so right now because of the campaigns he has you can tell the whole 
the whole name of the local politicians who are Republicans, because they all have posters on his front lawn. And uh, he has these flags, you know, the display of all the flags, you know, black, uh, sorry, not black, uh, the uh, blue lives matter, you know, and all that yes, stuff as well. Yes. And now he has a new flag everywhere is like about a dozen of them along the whole frontage of his farm, you know, there, uh, which is the Trump's face says 2024 hmm. and miss me yet oh, oh, God. as a message. Oh, God. So we have, you know, you know, that's one barometer, which tells me right away now that we are heading towards that pitchforks moment very fast. The other thing is that, I mean, I, my local gym is uh, probably about 60% um, kind of, you know, people who would be Trump supporters. You can tell it by the T-shirts they wear, mm. by messages they have on T-shirts. You know, mm. you have sometimes people with MAGA hats and things like that as well there. Um, very polite, very nice people to, work, to, you know, be around and engage with as well and discuss and all. But they are certainly fired up. Yeah, I, the, 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 there's a phrase that they use that they are... Um, emotionally uh articulate and yet um you know uh politically conservative so you know you like uh, it's it's why so many uh can can we when we say well then they say well the left are just want to shout at you unfortunately some people on the left do just want to shout too often you know true and unfortunately for us you know whether we are center left you know i mm. personally think that i'm neither center nor left you know nor right oh, i know i know but i you, you know, I, but, I i never apologize for leaning left so that was no I, no I, and, and you shouldn't and, and, no. you know and somebody shouldn't apologize for leaning right either you know i mean it depends how far you lean that's where the mm. apology really comes yes but, I mean, but, you know. but I, can, if we can if we can bring this to to one or one other big key issue here, and we it's, it's amazing we've gone forty minutes, we probably haven't touched on Ukraine and what what's happening there at the moment. We also, but the one thing we can kind of say with some certainty, unfortunately, now is that it looks like that's going to be a, a much more prolonged conflict uh, that then then maybe people had hoped. I mean, I think the first time we spoke about it, we kind of knew ourselves, but I don't think we kind of settled into the idea now that it is going to be a much more prolonged conflict and there's no there's no actual easy answer. And, you know, you see the likes of the UN's uh, deal with Russia on grain and fertilizer and how that's fallen apart. The implications that has for places like the Horn of Africa, potentially, the implications that has, and that comes, comes and falls off the agenda. So quickly, so quickly, it fa- it's fallen off the agenda. And yet, you know, it's just in this news cycle where we're we going, will Trump be back? There could be, we could see potentially people on the move because of food insecurity globally. And that is something that that is much more is going to be accelerated by the process of whether it's food insecurity or climate action. And we're not taking the steps that we have. And it's much more dangerous now than it was last February. Oh, I agree with you that the danger levels are rising beyond any doubt. Whether it is Ukraine war, which isn't happening, sorry, which isn't helping. Sorry, of course, kind of, you know, um, what a Freudian sleep there. Um, so, uh, of course, it's not helping by any possible means. Uh, but the forces that are driving this disruption, global disruption that we have, uh, are accelerating. They're accelerating because of the climate change accelerating. They're also ac- accelerating because of the global trade patterns shifting. So the food, for example, shortages and shipments to the likes of the Horn of Africa that you mentioned. I mean, Horn of Africa used to be pretty self-sufficient in terms of the food production. Uh, and most of the imports that they would have been taken would be regional imports uh, rather than global imports. The fact that we are living in a world where the deglobalization is happening at the same time as we are more and more reliant on globalization 
is going to be amplifying that. We talked about Federal Reserve policy. Fed's policy that has dramatically increased the value of the U.S. dollar and therefore made unsustainable fiscal and um, private debts. And I just actually wrote for one of my columns in Ireland uh, about that uh, this week. Um, uh, you know, dramatically increased no, uh, unsustainable nature of the debt levels assumed by the developing countries uh, because they borrow in the U.S. dollar. It's dramatically increased the cost of imports that they are buying uh, that are dependent on, say, for example, dollarized trade flows. So, you know, like this this type of stuff is there. And you mentioned Ukraine. Um, Ukraine is certainly, um, you know, not Ukraine itself, but the war in Ukraine, Russian aggression in Ukraine has certainly disrupted significantly flow of foodstuffs, both Russian and Ukrainian as well, uh, global experts, which are very important because, of course, both countries are leaders or within the top three exporters around the world in different food commodities and fertilizer commodities and so forth. So, um I mean, yes, absolutely is a big issue. And as you said, it played back now. Um, we, it took us 40 minutes to get to it. It takes the average newspaper these days probably the same amount of time relative to the other news flow mm. um, uh, to get to it as well. And it is uh, precisely what uh, people who would be kind of say realpolitik analysts um, on the Russian side um, was saying for a long period of time, this conflict is going to be a frozen conflict. It's going to be a long-term conflict. So you better don't hope for the, um, you know, let's supply weapons to uh, Kiev and uh, that will somehow dramatically resolve the whole war within, you know, a month's time. Um, that hope is misplaced. So, um, I mean, unfortunately, that is the reality. Yes, it's yeah. a trench warfare right now on the ground there. Um, it seems like Ukrainian troops are still attacking in some areas, but their attacks are not successful in terms of gaining ground, uh, certainly not at the rate as they were during the beginning of the October. Um, that process of slowdown is both weather and climate driven, but also is driven by the fact that the Russians are putting more resources there on the mm -hmm. ground. Um, there is still this strange narrative that we get, which I would say propaganda really narrative um, of, uh, you know, dramatically successful um, offensives by the mm. Ukrainian troops. But you have to realize that there is this is a David and Goliath. That's fight. That, that's I it. Mean, I mean, we, we can. And again, we can all be heartened when they say, well, they've retaken this place. But we have to understand that they're putting that Russia are going to put deploy 240,000 troops, you know, yeah, and, and that's and, right. And, and and when they do that, that changes everything, you know, and, and of all course of this. So, so I, if we can, if we can try and don't mean to flip, but I do, but I do want to be a bit more hopeful. So we talk about often there's this real arrogance about the West, how we talk about, you know, well, if we put the sanctions on Russia, if we do this there, if we do that there, it will mean that, you know, that everybody will come away around to our way of thinking. And we never sort of say out loud that the non-aligned countries actually are more populous than us, actually have more, uh, cover more surface area of the globe than us and all of these issues. Mm -hmm. Now, what we have seen, and again, I'll, I'll argue it, and you can probably say you disagree, but I don't know if you saw um, Gustavo Petro's uh, speech in the UN, the, the new Colombian president, where he spoke about, you know, saving the Amazon, backing away from fossil fuels, uh, talking about the war on drugs have, having failed and that, you know, we need less consumerism to fill our, fill our, fill our hearts and more love. It was a really brilliant speech. And then we see Lula winning in, uh, in Brazil, barely, albeit, and we know that there's probably more contentious issues to happen there. 
But maybe there is hope there where where these countries that we would would have referred to as the non-aligned countries in many ways, uh, that there there is a, an opportunity that that the change can come from there if we can put aside our uh, Western um, arrogance that it, it, we, we're the drivers. Maybe we're not going to be now. Maybe we won't, and we're losing the firepower economically to be thus. If you look at the advanced economies, the advanced economies back in, say, 1980 uh, accounted for about 62% um, of the global economy, and then uh, and the developing economies were 38%. Now it's completely flipped, yes? So, um, yes, they are getting more firepower. Um, what's interesting about that is that, um, you know, we have the United States effectively have lost global south completely um i mentioned that before that for example the us uh bilateral trade with africa as the entire continent has shrunk by half in the last 15 years that's remember this is the fastest growing continent on the face of earth um and the united states trade with it has shrunk dramatically um so you're looking at the latin america which used to be the backyard Colombia, you mentioned we used to be a pliant you know if you want vassal of the united states um, it's now becoming more and more assertively independent. Um, the United States strategy in Latin America is done for. There isn't one, really. Hasn't been one coherent in years. Mexico is now falling out of the U.S. orbit with the Democratic president in place. So if Trump gets reelected, what that's going to do to these relations, okay? So interestingly enough, the West is becoming more isolated just as our Western media is pretending that we are becoming more powerful mm. and more ethically charged and more moral and so forth. There are reasons for it. I mean, look at Germany's statement uh, yesterday uh, directed at Serbia, basically saying that Serbia has a choice to make between you know being with Europe versus being with Russia. And, you know, like, I mean, have they forgot whom they bombed mm. in the 99? I mean, like last time I checked, you know, you know, Russia didn't bomb Serbia. Um, the EU did, you know, NATO did. Whether that was right or wrong, that's a different story, okay? But it certainly frames the point of view that is held in the Balkans. It certainly frames well, the point it, of view it's, that it's, is it's, there. It's within, it's within living memory, so you're going Yeah, to... exactly. And it's not only within living memory, it's also within current ongoing processes of continuously knowing that they have lost Kosovo, continuously being reminded of that as well by the EU. So if you think about this, the current modus operandi for the West um, is either like the United States, where you now threaten an embargo, a sea-level embargo against Russia, which is the biggest maritime border country, as far as I know, um, in the world, um, you know, and they're effectively saying that they're going to impose that over Russian shipments of oil. Um, and then, of course, LNG is going to follow as well, uh, which is triggering a reaction from our traditional allies, Western traditional allies in the Middle East, uh, including, for example, OPEC plus decision to cut production quotas, uh, which was motivated not by the, their love for Russia, nope. but by their realization that they're going to be next. Mm. And if they allow that to happen to Russia, well, hell, you know, the United States is just going to put its Navy in front of pretty much every port they want and dictate to everyone what they want to dictate. So the the gap between the rest of the world and our world, the Western world, is widening. So the only strategy in response to that is try to enlarge our own Western world. 
And the only region which is doing that is Europe. So Europe is the only one which can still absorb the likes of Serbia, okay, the likes of Moldova, the likes of Ukraine, and so forth. And that's at least a somewhat coherent response to the idea of us kind of being more and more isolated within the broader world, which is becoming bigger and bigger. But the United States doesn't have that. Okay, yeah. so the likes of Australia doesn't have that. Australia is building fortresses on the islands to lock up people who are trying to get into it. You know, yeah. so it's very interesting and very dis, you know disconcerting you know type of environment that we are living in, where the geopolitical power is not just shifting from one block to another. Always disruptive process it used to be you know ca- cause of world wars and things like that in the past. Yes, um, so I mean obviously we are facing that as well. Uh, but it is also a process where neither the gaining power currently nor losing power have coherence in terms of their strategy and their worldview and their position as well in the world. So very much, look, it's the age of uncertainty we're in. I think that's a really, really great summation. I, I often think of um, Aaron Dahi Roy's phrase about using – we. The West used lifestyle wars, war, war, wars fought elsewhere so we could maintain mm. our our way of living. And how now the uh if I'm gonna use an awful phrase and forgive me for being for being blunt about it, the barbarians are at our own gates and on our own shores yeah. and on our, and and that is and that is when and that is when sadly some of these things come come home to roost. Um on that note, on that positive note and cheery note, I'm gonna leave it there. Constant Gordiev, thank you so much again for taking your time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. I know Martin is the, the distraught that he's got to miss this as well because he's he always enjoys having the having the chats with 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 you so thanks again and listen folks thanks for your support thanks for listening thanks for sharing do let people know um we are always amazed at the thousands of people who are listening so so yeah tell tell someone because we don't have ads we don't have sponsors we absolutely rely on you thanks very much take care bye bye tony and martin martin and tony speaking to interesting people only it's the echo chamber podcast subscribe now on p